Oh Lord, as we come before you today, we want to continue to, to worship you by praising you for who you are. Lord, we stop and we pause and we, we must recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We want to thank you for, for your love that you have lavished upon us through your Son who did not tithe his life or his blood, but he gave it all. He laid down his life that we might live. And Lord, today we specifically pray for our neighbors in Houston and throughout Texas. We pray that you would give them peace that only you can provide during this time of recovery. Use this time of desperation to, to open eyes to the truth of the gospel. And your word, Lord, let it comfort those weary souls. Oh Lord, when we even begin to recognize the lostness in our own region, help us to see the spiritual poverty and the desperation that abounds. People who, if they were to die today, would spend eternity in hell. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful to think of everything we do, every dollar, every, every activity, every program, every event, every sermon is towards that end. Lord, help us to be faithful to the mission that you have set before us. Let our sole aim never to be simply to obtain a building, but may we give faithfully and sacrificially for the purpose of making disciples among all peoples. So we ask that you bless the, the tithes and offerings that are given today, and we ask that you lead us to be a faithful people, a people who will step out on faith and follow you. Now as we go to open up your word and continue in worship through the preaching of your word, we pray that you'll bless this time. Open ears to hear and hearts to understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. And as you do, I think this is an appropriate time in our series uh, to point us to um, kind of what type of book this is that we're studying. Because we look at it and we say, okay, yes, it's, it's biographical in many ways, but the Gospel of Mark's not a biography. We look at it and say, okay, it's historical in many ways, but it's also, it's not a historical summary. What this book is, is a, is a gospel and if someone would have asked Mark or Matthew or Luke or John or any of them and said, okay, hey, what type of book are you writing? And they would have said, well, I'm writing a gospel. They would have been like, what's a gospel? Like, I, I, it's a new thing. Nobody knew what this was at that time. And what it is, is it's a book of good news. It's a book about the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's holding out Jesus, the Christ, for everyone to, to see. And it's saying, okay, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is Jesus, this is who he is, and this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. In other words, this is a book that demands a response. It's different than other books that we read. This book here demands a response. And the more we seek to understand the one who is revealed in this book, the more we begin to understand how much the one revealed in this book understands us. So what we're going to do is we're going to read, uh, beginning in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and we're going to read the story in its entirety. 
We're going to walk with it. It's going to be fairly lengthy, so just follow along as we go. It's narrative, so it's easy to follow along with. And then we're going to come out of this, and it's going to be seven short points that kind of fall, follow from this text. So, so follow along with me in, your, in the Scriptures as we go through. Beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard of the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who, the, see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the house, the ruler's house, someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he, he said to her, Talithia kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and, he, any, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. 
Now we ended last week with the story of the demoniac man, or, or better yet, Jesus casting out the, a legion of demons from the demoniac man and then commissioning him to go tell everything that the Lord had done in his life. And when he did, when he went out and he began to proclaim everything that the Lord had done, we're told what response? The people marveled at what they heard. Now Jesus here is leaving his hometown and he too is the one now marveling. But his marveling is over what? Their unbelief. He's marveling that the people in his hometown have responded the, the, the way they have. Unbelief, just dumbfounded by the way that they have responded. And so he walks away and he continues teaching in the villages. And as we studied two weeks ago, much of Jesus' teaching is done in parables. Those who are with him, those who are on the inside, are able to understand. Those who are not with him, those who are not on the inside, those who are on the outside, are not given the ability to understand. They're still blinded by their unbelief. As we saw with the parable of the sower and the seed, the, the, the sower is sin, casting out, he's sowing the seed all over the field. Wherever in the field he can throw it. Some is falling on, on paths, some is falling on rocky soil, some is falling among the thorns, and others is falling upon good soil. And it's that seed that falls upon the good soil that is producing an abundant, lasting, fruitful crop. What it's signifying here is that everyone in these crowds that are gathering around Jesus, all of them are hearing the gospel. The seed is being sown. The gospel is being sown. They're all hearing it, but they're not all understanding. Only the good soil produces a harvest. And we need not look any further than what we just read as our example. See, Jesus returned to his hometown and he began teaching in the synagogue. He began proclaiming the kingdom just like he has been doing everywhere else. He's teaching them the truths about the kingdom. But now how is he received? With questions. With disbelief. Actually, we're told they took offense at him, which leaves Jesus marveling at their unbelief. But they're not alone, are they? Last week we look at the Gerasians and they've witnessed what? They witnessed Jesus heal the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. <laughs> they witnessed this man who was naked and crazy and demon possessed now by one word of Jesus' command become completely still and calm like a storm. <laughs> at peace. They witnessed this. You would think that they would celebrate. They would think you, that you would, they would say... Jesus, stick around. We want to hear from you. We want to know these truths. Come on. But how do they respond? They beg him to leave. They beg him to go, to get away. And so with each of these stories of unbelief, what they do is they bookend a story of faith. See, the Gerasians you have on the one end, and on the other end you have the people of Jesus' hometown. Both stories of unbelief, but in the middle you have a story of faith personified. And so that's where we want to turn our attention. That's where we want to spend our time looking at these points. Point number one, sometimes it takes desperation to bring people to Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have crossed back over the sea. 
They're, they were back from, in Galilee from being their time with the Gerasenes. And upon returning, a great crowd has now gathered around Jesus. And within the crowd, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, saw Jesus. He comes to him. He falls at his feet. And he begins to beg Jesus to heal his daughter. I picture this in modern day as a parent inside the hospital chapel just down on their knees begging God to save their child. It's a situation that none of us ever want to experience. His father has done everything in his power to save his daughter. Everything. But to no avail. Parents, you you can feel the desperation here where he wants nothing more to save save his daughter and he can't do it. Can you, can you relate to him, empathize with him in this moment? And what he's done now is he's come, he's falling at the feet of Jesus, and he's begging him to save her. Jesus agrees to go with them, and they're on their way to Jairus' house, and a great crowd now is, is following along. They're pressing in around from all angles, and everyone's reaching out. They want to get nearer to Jesus, touching Jesus, all, all right there in this crowd. And all of a sudden, Jesus just pauses. He stops, and he asks the question, who touched me? His disciples are like, what do you mean, who touched you? Like, everybody's touching you, Jesus. This is a a weird question. Like, who's not touching you in this moment? But this touch was different. Because at the moment Jesus receives this touch, he felt power leave from him. And he gazes across the crowd. And as he gazes across the crowd, a woman steps forth. And she falls at the feet of Jesus. And she proceeds to tell her story. A story of shame. A story of uncleanliness. A story that what is revealed is that she too is coming in desperation. This woman has suffered for 12 years from a discharge of blood. She has done everything in her power to find help, to find healing. She's gone to every single doctor imaginable. Everyone, she spent all of her finances, all of her wealth, everything she could to get better, to no avail. In fact, we're told that her, her, her symptoms, her situation has only grown worse, which tells us that the prospects of this woman's life are no different than the dying girl's. It's in a grave situation. She has come to Jesus in an act of desperation. And what we are reminded of here is that sadly, For some, it takes coming to the end of one's rope before they come to Jesus. Some have to hit rock bottom before they turn to Christ. And if truth be told, that may be some of your stories in this room today. I pray that if it's not your story, that it never has to be your story. Anybody who has had that story would never wish that upon anybody else. But what we're reminded, no matter when you come to faith in Christ, even if it's at the, the bottom of the well, even if it's the end of the road, it's better late than never. And whatever it takes to bring us to Christ is worth it. Whatever it takes to get our attention and to bring us to Jesus is worth it. Number two, don't let your shame keep you from coming to Jesus. This woman's condition has left her ceremonially unclean. 
She couldn't go to the temple to pray. She couldn't go fulfill the Old Testament sacrifice laws. She, she couldn't even go out and, and be in public. If she touched anyone, she was going to render them unclean. So for all intents and purposes, she is cut off from the society that she is living in. She's been this way for 12 years. She's much like the leprous man. But when she hears of Jesus... She hears of what's taking place and what he's doing. She comes pressing through the crowds. Picture it if you will. This woman determined. She's pressing through the crowd. She doesn't care if she's breaking the law. She doesn't care if she's rendering every single person that she's touching unclean. She's coming. She's coming eyes focused on Jesus. She has to get to Jesus because he is her only hope. She was like, even if I can just touch his garments... If I can just touch his garments, it's going to make me well. Now, does this woman come with her life all cleaned up and put together? No. Does she come with a a, a robust theology and knowing exactly who Jesus is and have all the Bible figured out? No, actually, when we look at this woman, based upon her desire to, to reach out and touch his garments, it's kind of hinting at the fact that she probably had some kind of pagan superstition that was mixed in there as well. Which tells us this woman is coming just the way she is. She's coming just the way she is. She's coming unclean and helpless. Her theology is weak, but her faith is strong. Her eyes are fixed exclusively upon Jesus. In the moment that she touches his garment, what happens? With one faith-filled touch, 12 years of shame, 12 years of pain, 12 years of of uncleanliness and frustration and isolation are gone. With the touch of Jesus, she is made new. She's made clean. And so it is with everyone who comes to Jesus in faith. With everyone. See, our scars may remain. The memories of our past can continue to haunt us. They're hard to overcome. But we need to recognize and to realize that if we come to Christ in faith, our sins are forgiven and we are that person no more. If you are here today and you are beating yourself up over your past and you have put your faith in Christ, recognize that you are that person no more. And here's what we need to realize. Number three, Jesus receives everyone who comes to him by faith. See, this woman comes before Jesus in fear. She comes before him trembling. She comes before him sharing her story of shame and her story of suffering. (laughs) And how does Jesus respond? Does he look at her with shame and disgust? (laughs) Does he say, how dare you, woman? You unclean woman, why would you touch me? That's the way we kind of feel, isn't it, at times? Like, why would Jesus ever touch me? Why would anyone want to be near my uncleanliness? Why? We beat ourselves over the past. We beat ourselves up over our identity. But that's not how Jesus responds here. What does he say? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Look how Jesus addresses this unnamed woman. Daughter. He calls her daughter. It's the only time we ever see Jesus address someone this way in in the text. And and it's an intimate word only used to describe someone inside of the family. You're not going around on the streets calling people sons and daughters, are you? (laughs) 
It's reserved for someone who's inside of the family here. When looking, her theology was weak, but her faith was strong. (laughs) She was unclean, but through her faith in Christ, she was made clean by the grace of God. It's a beautiful story of redemption. See, this woman had tried absolutely everything to save herself. (laughs) Some of you have been there, right? Tried absolutely everything to save herself. But she had never trusted in Jesus. But when she did, he made her new. And again, maybe that's you today. Maybe you've tried everything, but you've, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, my theology is weak. I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about the Scriptures. I, just, I have it all, all mixed up and messed up. You, you feel nothing but shame for your past life or the life that you're living. You're just in that spot, but... Jesus himself reminds us. Jesus himself reminds us as we looked just a few weeks ago, even the faith of a mustard seed is enough to save if that faith is found and placed exclusively in Christ. Faith of a mustard seed is enough to save. So reach out today. Reach out today, friend, and have faith in Christ to save you. Reach out today so we can no longer call one another friends, but we can call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Reach out today in faith and come inside the family. Number four, our faith is to serve as an example to others. Now, when this woman comes to Jesus, she, she, again, she's coming with fear. She's coming with trembling. She's coming desperate. But who's right there with Jesus other than the disciples? Like, who's right there next to him in this crowd? Whose house are they on their way to? Jairus. They're on their way to Jairus' home. He has come desperate and fearing for the life of his daughter. See, it's easy for us to point out the similarities between the girl and the woman. We look at them and we see both are females that were healed by the touch of Jesus. Both are called daughter. Both the length of the woman's illness and the age of the girl are both 12 years of age. Both put Jesus in contact with the unclean. But really the the focus is on Jairus and the woman here. They they only have one thing in common. Both are are victims of desperate circumstances and they have no other hope apart from Jesus. See, Jairus had a name and and a position and occupation. This woman has has neither of these. Her, Her name is not given, nor is it remembered. What we see here is that she has no position. Her only identification is her shame. That's it. She's recognized throughout Scripture for her shame and what we're told, her faith. See, Jairus holds no advantage over her regarding anything. Nothing. Especially the one thing that matters most. Faith. Faith. She exemplifies faith. She is setting the example for Jairus because Jairus is about to be told that he, his, his daughter has died. And now this woman's faith is going to be the example that he is going to need to trust in these uncertain times. It's the faith that we and those around us need as well. When those storms of life begin to build up and they happen and you're walking through those midst of those storms, 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, those are the times that the world is watching. And they're saying, okay, is what they believe real? Is it only in the good times or, or, or is they trusting Christ in the bad times as well? It's a powerful testimony to a watching world. And we must, number five, trust Jesus even when things seem hopeless. See, while, while Jesus heals the woman, the delay now has kept him from making it to Jairus' daughter in, in time. She's now died, leaving those close to Jairus to say, what is this teacher to do now? Leave him alone. Don't bother him any further. Basically, they're saying, what, what more can he do? There's nothing anybody can do. She's dead. What, what can anybody do to help her? But in studying this, the thing that sticks out to me here is how they're addressing Jesus. Their perception of Jesus much like the perception people have of him today. They're saying, okay, why trouble this teacher? Teacher. See, they see Jesus as someone special. They see him as somebody who's doing the miraculous. They're not discounting that he is teaching in, in amazement. People today do the same thing. They, they look at Jesus and, and, and they're like, okay, he was a really good prophet, a really good guy, a miracle worker. He was a humanitarian. He was all these things. But what they don't see here is that is how he's going to be able to help a girl who has died. How can, how can Jesus, how can a teacher help now? I, it, it, there's no chance here. And that's where we have to look according to Scripture and say, oh, ye of little faith. Because just looking back to last week, and we say, okay, this is the same Jesus who calmed the storm by, by a simple word. This is the Jesus who cast out a legion with a simple word. This is the Jesus who, who all things were created through and for and who currently is holding all things together. This is Jesus here crying out and saying, trust me. That's why he turns to Jairus and he looks at Jairus. I picture him just looking him straight in the eye with all the uncertainty that's abounding. And he's saying, Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. In other words, he's saying, Jairus, I, I know that fear is gripping you right now. I know that's your baby girl. I know you, all the pain and the anguish of her loss is flooding into you right now. You're fearing, what are you going to do with, without your, your girl? And then he's saying, but look to me. Jairus, look to me. Not, not to me as the teacher, but to me as the most high son of God. Look to me as the son of God. Don't fear. Only believe. Leaving Jairus with a choice. Leaving each and every one of us with a choice. Believe only in what we can feel, touch, understand, and experience. Or believe in the Jesus who holds the universe together by the word of his power. We have the choice. Notice the key word here is believe. Like the woman here, Jairus must trust Jesus despite everything that is begging him and tempting him to the contrary. You can imagine the temptation here. His daughter has died. Logic would say there is no hope. It is an impossibility for anything good to come now. And Jesus is saying, don't fear, only believe. And he's saying it to each and every one of us in this room today too. Do not fear, only believe. And here's why. Number six, Jesus brings the dead to life. See, from here, Jesus proceeds to Jairus' house. 
He's only taking Peter, James, and John with him of his disciples. The rest he's leaving them behind. These are the inner three, if you will. These are the ones who will go up on the mountain. They'll see the transfiguration with him as well. And they arrive to what is a heart-wrenching scene of grief. The people are wailing and, and weeping loudly. And upon entering the house, Jesus asked what appears on the surface to be an absurd, if not heartless, question. He asked them, why are you making commotion and weeping? And they're thinking, why do you think we're making commotion and weeping? The, babe, the girl, his daughter, has died. It's a horrific scene that's taking place, but it's a question that is then followed by a statement. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And how do they respond? They laugh. The crowd, the mourners, they laugh. And it's not like, ha ha, Jesus said, that's so funny. <laughs> that's not what they're saying. It's a, it's a laugh of, you've got to be kidding me. You're out of your mind. She's dead. We, we know that she's dead. And no doubt they do. She is dead. But what they fail to realize, what they fail to understand is who just walked in the room. They fail to understand who just walked in the room. Remember the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm? They're sitting there on the boat and they're questioning among themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The laughing mourners prove that they don't know the answer either. They don't know who just walked in the room. The Gerasians, they beg Jesus to leave. Get away, get out of our presence. The home, these hometown people, they took offense at him. And these mourners, they're laughing as a result of their unbelief. What we're seeing here, church, is we're seeing the seed tossed near and far all over the field. The sower is sowing the seed in the crowd and they're all hearing the same message. But some are believing and some are not. Some is falling on, on the path and some is falling on the rocky soil and some is falling among the thorns and the thistles and others is falling on the good soil. And that's what's producing the fruit. We see even among these crowds all these people who are not believing, but what do we see? We see people who are. We see a, a woman come forth. The most God would never save that person in her uncleanliness and she comes forth in faith. When we see Jairus coming forth in faith. Now this is where you would think Jesus would say, okay, now you really want to believe? Watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. <laughs> come watch me raise this girl from the dead. And that's the natural kind of question here, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he, he leaves the unbelieving crowd, the laughers, he leaves them outside. And he invites Jairus and his wife and Peter, James, and John. He says, okay, now you come with me on the inside. And the natural question there is why? Why would he do that? Why would, wouldn't this be a great evangelistic moment? And again, the answer there is no. We don't have time to read it. You can write it down. Luke chapter 16 tells the story of rich man and Lazarus where the rich man is in hell and he's begging like, for someone to send somebody from here to, from the dead to my loved ones, to my brother. Tell them that this is real. That tell them now and then they'll believe. And, and then the response is, no, they won't. No, they won't. The answer, actual response is if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the word of the scripture, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Simply put, what they're saying here is if, if one does not believe the word of God, they will not believe the works of God. Meaning there, no, no amount of miracles, no amount of signs is going to make somebody believe. 
if they do not believe the Word of God, a sign is not going to make a difference to them. We see that with the Pharisees. They've come to their own conclusions about Jesus. They've seen all kinds of stuff taking place. They're saying he, he's, he's possessed by a demon. His own family says he's out of his mind. His hometown's taking offense to him. They're seeing all these things. People could people demand a sign, and literally, God could go out there right now and write in the sky, Jesus, the Son of God, believe in me. I will save you. And people will then look and say, well, that's just a nice anomaly. People are going to be like, well, they'll kind of come up with a, a reason that's man-made or creation or whatever in existence. They're going to come up with a natural reason for why that happened. That's what unbelief does. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the reality of taking place. But when Jesus enters the room, with those on the inside, with Jairus and his wife and Peter, James and John, he goes into the room and he takes this 12-year-old girl by the hand. And he gently says to her, Talithia kum, which in Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, arise. There's nothing extraordinary about these words. There's no writing in the sky. There's no hocus pocus taking place. In fact, it's all quite, quite ordinary. What we see here is an ordinary, tender touch from Jesus and a simple word. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And what happens? What happens? <laughs> she gets up. She gets up. Jesus speaks and life comes forth. Jesus speaks and the waves and the sea grow calm. Jesus speaks and the legion of demons obey and come out. This is no ordinary teacher. This is the author, the giver, the sustainer of life. And the people in the room are amazed. They're amazed. Are you? Are you, are you amazed by the life-giving work of Jesus? In your life? In the life of those around you? Or do you find yourself relating more to the laughing mourners, laughing at the possibility that Jesus could do such a thing? There's no way Jesus could save me. Does he know me? I'm, I'm just too shameful. I'm too unclean. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not too far gone. You're not too unclean. You're not too shameful. Oh, church, I pray that we, we stand amazed. We look out upon our population, 70 plus thousand people, and we say, that's impossible. There's no way. There's no way. Not in our powers, there's not. But what do we do? We, we go out and we faithfully sow the seed. We make disciples. We do what God's called us to do. We sleep. And we let God give the growth. We trust Him to do what only He can do. We sow the seed on every single bit of soil we can possibly throw it. And we let God determine what's the good soil and what's not. We trust Him. And then we sit back and we stand amazed. <laughs> <laughs>
We stand amazed at the glorious work of Christ. Number seven, those who Jesus brings to life are invited to the table. See, while those inside the room stand amazed, we once again see Jesus' command of silence is given to the witnesses. Hey, don't go out and talk about everything that you've just seen. Don't go out and talk about everything that you've just experienced. And we've talked about some of the reasons why in previous sermons, but the natural question here is, okay, when this girl actually walks out the door, aren't they going to know the truth? <laughs> like, how, how are they going to keep this secret when she walks out of the door? <laughs> how, is that, how are you going to hide that one there? Well, the truth be told, when she walks out of that door, those unbelieving hearts are going to say, oh, she was really asleep, wasn't she? They're still going to come up with a natural excuse. They're, they're still not going to believe. But those who are inside, like the transfiguration, what we see is this is a moment of special revelation to those who are on the inside. Those who are invited into the the cathedral, if you will, and they see the beautiful light shining through the stained glass. They're seeing it for what it is. It's a picture of what is to come for those of us who are in Christ. It's a picture of what awaits A picture of Mark's original audience, those who are facing insurmountable just kind of persecution from the Roman Emperor Nero, reading this. A picture, even us in our uncertain times, reading this. This is a picture of what Christ has done for those of us who believe. They're witnessing this in this room. See, before coming to Christ, every single one of us were dead on the table. All of us. We were dead on the table, could do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. And Christian, in that moment when we were dead on the table, Jesus came and He took your unclean hand and He calls you to rise from your sinful slumber. called you to rise from your sinful slumber and to leave your shameful guilt-ridden past behind and he set you free he set you free think about this church he loves you to such a degree that he took your uncleanness he took your guilt upon himself he bore your shame he bore your guilt and he died upon the cross But because he rose from the dead, so will we who are in Christ. We too will hear these words again. Arise. (laughs) Arise. For the dead in Christ will rise with him when he returns. When that trumpet sounds and he calls us home, the dead in Christ will rise. (laughs) And like that little girl, (laughs) we're going to be invited to eat we're going to be invited to join in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I don't know what that's exactly going to look like. I've got images in my head. We're going to be sitting there at that table together with Jesus. And I just picture him saying, hey, will you pass the wine? (laughs) It's going to be good wine or grape juice. (laughs) It's going to be good bread. It's going to be an intimate gathering of family. Sons and daughters of the king.
those of us who were unclean, shameful, dead in our sin, but made alive by the working of Christ. Until he returns, we come and we partake of this table. A meal that is reserved exclusively for those who are a part of the inside of the family of God. For those who marvel and are amazed by the work of Christ in your life. Those who haven't come with it all put together and everything figured out, but we come broken. We come like the paralytic through the roof, (laughs) desperate for Jesus. We come like the woman making her way through the crowd, desperate for Jesus. We come like Jairus, falling at the feet of Jesus, desperate for him, needing him to make us clean, to make us well, to put us together. And if that's you today, we invite you to come to the table. If that's not you today, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, please come find me. I want to talk to you about the greatest news. I want to talk to you about the greatest Jesus. I want to talk to you about the one who, with a touch, can make you clean. Oh Lord, as we come to the table today, we come in both remembrance and in celebration of the saving work of Christ. We remember and recognize that without Christ, we, we are, we're dead on the table. That we deserve your judgment for our sin. But we celebrate today and we say thank you because your son took our shame and our guilt upon himself at the cross. We celebrate because your word tells us that if we believe, we have no reason to fear. As Christ has already defeated our greatest enemy. So today as we come to the table, we come before you not by merit, not by position, but only by faith, trusting in your son Jesus alone for our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Take time now to prepare your hearts before you come to the table. If you are a guest with us, new to the table, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come. Again, if you are not a a believer in Jesus Christ, we ask that you refrain from the the table. But what you'll find is two cups stacked in and on top of each other. The top one is the juice. The bottom one contains the bread. You take that and you go back to your seat and you take that as as a family, as a couple together. But you prepare your hearts now and as you feel led, you, you come.